Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Outrage Science Bites, the companion podcast to the Outrage Overload podcast. I'm David Beckmeyer, your host and Outrage Overlord. Okay, here we are at day 23 of the NAPOD POMO Challenge. That's a 30-day challenge. National Podcast Post Month, a 30-day challenge to produce a podcast episode every day in the month of November. And this episode is being released on Thanksgiving Day. If you're in the U.S., that's when we celebrate Thanksgiving, this Thursday, today, November 23rd. So this episode, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue on this theme of sort of um, talking about how a lot of the science stuff that we've talked about in these episodes and that, we, that comes up in the context of conversations we have on the Outrage Overload podcast, I'm going to talk about how those science phenomenon sort of show up in real life. So this episode is a little bit more history, but again, I'll refer back to uh, some of the science and how it applies uh, as we go on. So in the early 1930s, there was a Catholic priest named Charles Coughlin, who was better known as Father Coughlin. He emerged as one of the most popular and influential radio personalities in the United States. His weekly broadcasts drew millions of listeners, and he used his platform to promote a radical form of populism that was infused with Nazi propaganda and anti-Semitic messaging. Coughlin began his career as a moderate social reformer, but his views darkened as the Great Depression deepened. He blamed the economic crisis on a Jewish conspiracy and called for the nationalizations of banks and industries. He also praised Hitler and Mussolini, and he advocated for the United States to withdraw from the League of Nations. Coughlin's message resonated with millions of Americans who were struggling to make ends meet and who were feeling increasingly disillusioned with the government and the establishment. We have to remember there was no TV at this time. Radio was the TikTok of its day. People tuned in and watched the radio. At his peak, Coughlin's radio audience was estimated to be over 30 million listeners. However, Coughlin's popularity began to decline in the late 1930s as Americans became more aware of his Nazi sympathies and his anti-Semitic rhetoric. Towards the end, about half the listeners said they didn't buy into his propaganda and listened only for the entertainment value. Now, what people took for entertainment has changed a lot over the years. Here's a clip from Coughlin's show, November 1938. The Jew has challenged the Christian for his sympathy and cooperation. In turn, the Christian challenges the Jew for his. In a spirit of mutual cooperation, in a scientific spirit of coldly facing causes, in order to remove effects, let us pause to inquire why Nazism is so hostile to Jewry in particular, and how the Nazi policy of prosecution can be liquidated. Uh, l- let me just drop in here that. Uh, more of this kind of ranting does go on. If you're already sort of had enough, a couple of 30-second skips should get you to the end of it. I'm leaving it in all in here because if you want to kind of get a sense of the kind of anti-Semitic, Nazi, pro-Nazi, pro-Hitler kind of stuff was going on, keep keep listening. But if you want to skip it, a couple of 30-second skips should get you pretty close to the end. It is the belief, be it well or ill-founded, of the present German government, not mine, that Jews, not as religionists, but as nationals only, 
were responsible for the economic and social ills suffered by the fatherland since the signing of the Treaty of Versailles. Imbued with this idea, be it right or wrong, an idea that spread rapidly, particularly since 1923, when communism was beginning to make substantial advances throughout Germany, a group of rebel Germans under the leadership of an Austrian-born war veteran, Adolf Hitler by name, organized for two purposes. First, to overthrow the existing German government under whose jurisdiction communism was waxing strong. And second, to rid the fatherland of communists whose leaders, unfortunately, they identified with the Jewish race. Thus, Nazism was conceived as a political defense mechanism against communism and was ushered into existence as a result of communism. And communism itself was regarded by the rising generation of Germans as a product not of Russia, but of a group of Jews who dominated the destinies of Russia. Did these Germans have facts, as they said, to substantiate this belief in the minds of the Nazi party? Official information emanating from Russia itself informed the world that communism, while barbarously opposed to every form of Christianity, made it a crime for any comrade to utter a single word of reproach against the Jews. Uncontradictable evidence, gleaned from the writings and the policies of Lenin, proved indisputably that the government of the Soviet Republic was predominantly anti-Christian and definitely anti-national. I don't know how well this would play in the short attention span world we live in today. Ultimately, the Catholic Church also distanced itself from Coughlin, and in 1939, Pope Pius XI ordered him to stop broadcasting. But that didn't stop him. Despite the loss of his Catholic platform, Coughlin continued to broadcast his sermons on his own radio station. He raised money to continue his broadcasting activities by selling books and pamphlets, this is populism at its fullest. Where have we seen this before? Anyway, in 1940, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, revoked Coughlin's broadcast license, citing his violation of FCC rules against the broadcasting of propaganda. Coughlin's story is a reminder of the power of the media to shape public opinion. It is also a reminder of the importance of vigilance against the forces of bigotry and intolerance. It also raises some complex questions about deplatforming and free speech, and it points out how the deplatforming question is not new. On the one hand, it is important to protect the right to free speech, even when that speech is offensive or hateful. On the other hand, there is a legitimate concern about the harm that can be done by allowing extremist voices to spread their message. In recent years, there has been a growing debate about the extent to which social media platforms and other online platforms should deplatform extremist voices. Some people argue that deplatforming only serves to radicalize these individuals and make them more dangerous. Others argue that deplatforming is necessary to prevent the spread of hate speech and violence. There is no easy answer to this question. It is important to weigh the right to free speech against the potential for harm when making decisions about deplatforming. In the case of Coughlin, the FCC ultimately decided that the potential for harm outweighed the right to free speech, especially with the war in Europe. 
It is also important to note that the media landscape has changed dramatically since Coughlin's time. In the 1930s, as mentioned, radio was the primary medium for mass communication. Today, there are a wide variety of media platforms, including social media, online streaming, and cable news. This makes it more difficult to control the spread of extremist content. Despite the challenges, it is important to continue to have a conversation about deplatforming and free speech. We need to find a way to protect the right to free speech while also preventing the spread of hate speech and violence. Here are a few specific comparisons between Coughlin's radio broadcasts and modern-day extreme talk shows and other content. Both Coughlin and modern-day extreme hosts use their platforms to promote hatred and division. Both Coughlin and modern-day extreme hosts often use inflammatory rhetoric and conspiracy theories to engage their audiences. Both Coughlin and modern-day extreme hosts have been accused of inciting violence. That's my dog snoring, and I'm going to leave that in, by the way. However, there are also some important differences between Coughlin's time and the present day. For one thing, the media landscape is much more fragmented today. This makes it more difficult for any one individual or group to have the same level of influence that Coughlin once did. That said, I want to note that a recent Brookings Institute survey found that almost one quarter, almost one in four Americans believe in the QAnon conspiracy theory. Additionally, there's a growing awareness of the dangers of hate speech and extremism today. This has led to a number of initiatives to counter these forces, such as fact-checking websites and social media campaigns to promote tolerance and understanding. Now, tying all this back to the scientific phenomena we've discussed here, and that comes up in the context of material we present on the Outrage Overload podcast, here are a few psychological phenomena or cognitive biases that play into the Father Coughlin story. Confirmation bias, which we've talked about a lot. People tend to seek out information that confirms their existing beliefs and ignore or discount information that contradicts those beliefs. This bias was likely at play among Coughlin's followers, who were more likely to be receptive to his message if it already aligned with their own beliefs. Scapegoating. People tend to blame scapegoats for their problems, even when the scapegoats are not actually responsible. Coughlin's anti-Semitic rhetoric played on this bias by blaming Jews for the economic problems of the Great Depression. In-group bias. People tend to favor members of their own group and to discriminate against outsiders. Coughlin's message was appealing to many Americans because it spoke to their sense of national identity and their fear of outsiders. Availability heuristic. People tend to judge the likelihood of an event based on how easily they can recall examples of it. Coughlin's frequent use of anecdotes and personal stories made his message more believable to his listeners. Now, I'm going to note that I had to reread that num a number of times because I kept saying followers instead of listeners uh, in using 20 century, uh, 21st century language. The bandwagon effect. People tend to conform to the opinions of the majority, even if they don't actually agree with those opinions. Coughlin's popularity likely contributed to his influence as people were more likely to believe his message if they thought it was popular. This can also be called a form of pluralistic ignorance, which I hope to cover in a future Outrage Science Bites episode. These are just a few of the many psychological phenomena and cognitive biases that can be seen in the Father Coughlin story. Understanding these biases can help us to be more aware of how they can influence our own thinking and behavior and to make more informed decisions about the information we consume and the people we trust. Despite all these challenges, there is reason to hope that we can learn from Coughlin's story and prevent the rise of another dangerous demagogue. 
And that's where I'll close out this episode. If you like these episodes, you might enjoy the long-form Outrage Overload podcast. That's outrageoverload.net is where you'll find that. And that's also where you can find past episodes of these Outrage Science Bites episodes. You can scroll down to the bottom, and there's a link to the Outrage Science Bites uh, section where you can find past episodes. You can also reach out to me at the bottom of that outrageoverload.net website. There's a place you can send me a voice message, or you can always email me at outrageoverload at gmail.com. I listen to all those messages, and I also read all the emails that I receive. So if you have an idea for an Outrage Science Bites episode you'd like to hear, or if you have questions about any of the science we've talked about or other things we've talked about, you want us to elaborate on it or anything like that, send, send us a note. We have, what, seven days left, so if we respond, we'll, we'll try to squeeze that into these last seven days. Hope to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and watch for another episode tomorrow.